Well, let me just briefly uh, reiterate what I said at length at the beginning. Um, for this next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, a passage in the Bible that is, is very, um, very close to who we are. We're going to be talking about marriage and singleness. We need to recognise that there are people uh, for whom this is a great joy, their singleness or their marriage. Uh, we also need to recognise that this is uh, an area that is one of great pain in many people's lives. We have people here who are widowed, people who are single and unhappily single, people who are married but who hate their marriage, people who are separated or divorced or divorced and remarried. We need to recognise that uh, talking about this stuff can be like opening an old wound and rubbing it in salt. We've got to be very careful and gentle with each other's feelings. But having said that, we don't want to let our feelings lead us to ignore God's word. And so as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm just going to call it the way I see it. I'm not going to try to deal with your situation, every possible situation. I will have a question time at the end, uh, but can I say again, question time may not be the time for us to talk about this. Uh, Can I offer again that I'm very much available over this next week to talk to people by email or by telephone if uh, this raises things for you that you want to discuss further with me. Uh, I wanted also just to remember again, as we did in our first prayer, that we are justified only by the Lord Jesus Christ, not by our being single or married or divorced or remarried. None of us are righteous because of ourselves or our relationships. We are righteous only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Having said all of that, it's time to look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Can I encourage you, please, to have it open because I'm going to read it and try to explain what it means. You'll also find an outline of the talk on the inside of the piece of paper you were given as you came in. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, do please help us to understand now accurately what your word says in its context. Help us to think carefully and wisely about how it applies to us. And please work in us by your spirit so that we love and trust you. We know that you are good. We trust that your word is good. We commit ourselves now uh, to loving you by obeying you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the city of Athens, from the year 428 to 347 BC, there lived a philosopher by the name of Plato. Plato believed that in essence, what we are as people is non-physical souls. Plato saw that our physical bodies are changing. Soon they will fade away. I have to say that uh, yesterday I went to a, a 30th anniversary school reunion from the 30th anniversary of uh, my HSC in 1985, and I can attest that our physical bodies change very quickly. Uh, Literally, I walked up to the tent full of all these old men, and my children said to me, is this the right place? And I said, I have got no idea because I don't recognise even one person here. (laughs) Soon our bodies will fade away. But our souls, Plato thought, are immortal. And so for Plato, it's our soul that matters. Our soul is who we really are. In the years that followed, many people picked up on Plato's ideas. And as we saw last week, that led some people to think that you can do whatever you want with your body. It's just this temporary thing. It's just a physical thing. It's not who you really are. So you may as well eat what you want, drink what you want, have sex with whomever you want. But this this split, this dichotomy between body and soul also led people down another path. It's a path that's come to be called asceticism. Asceticism. 
difficult word to say if you have a lisp, uh, but a good word to drop in conversation if, uh, if you want to impress people. Asceticism. Asceticism is the idea that uh, if you want to be truly religious, if you want to be close to God, then you need to stay away from physical things, from bodily things. You abstain from food and drink and mud and blood and flesh. You, you abstain from, uh, from sex or, or other physical pleasures. You, you focus instead on your soul. First points in church history, this sort of thinking has been very influential. In fact, by the time of the Middle Ages, the accepted view was that there are two kinds of people, the religious class and the secular class. The religious class, that was made up of bishops, priests and monks and nuns, they had renounced um, mere earthly things like marriage and sex. They had renounced mere earthly things like having a job. And they supposedly spent their lives fasting and praying in pursuit of the realm of the soul. Meanwhile, the ordinary people, they had to work for a living, not least to support the monks. Uh, They had to get their hands dirty. Uh, They were the ones who had to get married and have children. The view of the Middle Ages was that the religious class were spiritually superior to the secular class. They were the only ones who were truly godly. If you, wanted to, if you wanted prayer, for example, don't worry about praying yourself, you're too dirty, you need to ask one of the spiritual people to pray for you. The secular people never had a chance. They couldn't be properly religious with their earthy, fleshy, physical lives. Asceticism. It's had a big influence over the years, and I reckon it's still lying in the background in some of our thinking. We can fall into the trap of thinking that godliness equates to some kind of otherworldliness. Godliness is, uh, we think, it's not when you're washing the dishes or sitting on the toilet or having sex or playing sport. No, no, we think godliness is, is not about all that physical stuff. It's about cultivating the spiritual. It's about reading the Bible and meditating and praying and stuff like that. Well, as we'll see today, asceticism was also very influential in Corinth in the first century. Now, so far in the letter, we've seen that Paul's been dealing with uh, some reports that he's heard. Remember, some people from the lady of a family called Chloe had come to Paul, brought him reports about stuff that was happening in the church, divisions and uh, uh, problems with sexual immorality, people suing each other. Paul spent the first six chapters addressing these reports. But Chloe's family, they also came with a letter, a letter addressed to Paul from the Corinthians. Uh, In the letter, the Corinthians raised a number of issues and they asked some questions. And so now in chapter 7, Paul starts to interact with their letter. You can see the first issue in chapter 7 and verse 1. The Corinthians wanted Paul's view on sexuality. And they expressed the view that literally, and I'll give you a very literal translation now, it's good for a man to not touch a woman. Now, NIV 1984, you can see it translates it, it's good for a man not to marry. That's an interpretation. Uh, But you can see the footnote of the NIV there. Can you see the footnote? This is more accurate, and it's, it's now the translation in the NIV 2011. It's now the main translation. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Have a look at me, and I'm, I'm, I'll read the footnote. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about in your letter, it is good for a man to have, for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. It's good for a man to not touch to not have sex with a woman. That's classic asceticism, isn't it? If you want to be truly religious, you stay away from sex. Now, Paul's answer here is very subtle. 
Because as we're going to see briefly this week and more next week, there is something to what they're saying. It's not just wrong. There are some advantages to being single and celibate. It's good and godly for a Christian to be single and celibate. But here in the first verses of chapter 7, Paul makes it clear. If you are married, it's not true. It's not true that it's, not, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's not true that sex is dirty or unspiritual. The reality is that we are sexual beings. That is the good way that God made us. And the Corinthians, like us, they lived in a world where sex is often distorted in dangerous but extremely tempting ways. So Paul says, if you are married, you should have sex with your spouse. It's part of your duty to each other as married people. It's part of how you serve each other. It's part of how you help each other to be holy. It's not holy in a marriage to be celibate. It's holy to have sex. Verse 2. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. That's not washing the dishes, that's having sex. And likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Paul says, there may be occasions when being all religious and following your religious practices will stop you from having sex. Maybe for a special time devoted to prayer or something like that. But he says that needs to be a mutual decision. you both got to be in on it. And he says it mustn't be a long-term decision. It's only ever a concession. It's never a rule or a command to have a break from sex in marriage. The general rule is simple. In marriage, sex should be regular so you can help each other to be holy. Verse 5. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Uh, Paul now comes back to the issue. It's good for a man to not touch a woman. And he, he says, in certain contexts, that's true. He, say, he says, it's true in my own case as a single man, as a man who's able to, to handle celibacy without any problems, as a man who's able to devote himself to serving Jesus in a godly way as a single person. He says, godly celibacy, it's good, but it's not for everyone. It's not a gift everyone has. Verse 7. I, I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Uh, Paul now turns to single people like himself. And he says, it's good for you to stay as you are. Good and godly to stay single and to not have sex. But there's a big but. It's fine to stay single and have no sex. But if you're a person who wants to have sex, then you should get married. Here's the reasoning. Singleness is a godly option. And marriage is a godly option. The thing that's not godly is to have sex with someone you're not married to. So, if you want to have sex, get married. Verse 8. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, Paul now turns back to the married people. 
Now, remember the issue we're dealing with. The Corinthians are saying it's good for a man to not touch a woman. It's more godly if you stay away from sex. Of course, that's a problem if you're married and you're living with someone. Because, in most cases, at least, you keep being tempted to have sex with them. Um, Over the years, I've dealt with many couples who are living together and having sex before they're married. If they get converted and, and, and they want to get married, I suggest they stop having sex before the wedding. But if they're living together, particularly if they're sleeping in the same bed, it's not easy. And I get that. Uh, like there'd be something strange if you were sleeping in the same bed and having no trouble not having sex with each other if, you, if you're aiming to get married. So I've encouraged people who are living together to take a break. Move out until the wedding. Then move back in together again. Not many people have actually done it, I admit, but that's what I suggest to people. Anyway, here are these Corinthians. They're convinced that it would be more godly for them to stop having sex. But that's not easy when you're married. So, they reason, what's the godly solution? What should a godly Christian do in this situation? Answer? Get divorced. Separate from your spouse. Remove the temptation. That's the Corinthians' suggestion. Uh, But Paul reminds them that Jesus himself spoke on this subject. Jesus said that marriage is for life. It's never godly to separate or divorce. And if you do happen to separate, it certainly shouldn't be um, as an excuse to find another spouse to have sex with. Asceticism is never, it's never, it's never meant to be a cynical pretext for partner swapping. No, no, if you do separate, then you should be aiming to be reconciled, not, not go looking elsewhere. Verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Jesus has spoken on this. You can find red writing on it in your Bible. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does... She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. In the next section, Paul turns to people in a specific situation. Uh, That is, people who are married to non-Christians. As we've just seen, the Corinthians thought that it would be more godly to leave their Christian spouses. That way they wouldn't be tempted to have sex with them anymore. And in their minds, that must apply all the more to non-Christian spouses. I mean, think about uh, what Paul himself said just last week in chapter 6. He said, shall I take a member of Christ and unite him with a, unite him with a pagan prostitute? Uh, the idea that you would take a holy member of Christ's church and, and that they would unite themselves sexually with a pagan prostitute, it's, it's disgusting in Paul's mind. Well, how can a holy member of God's church unite themselves sexually with someone who has no part with Jesus, even if they're married to them? That's the Corinthian thinking. Surely, godly Christians should separate from non-Christian spouses. Paul says, wrong again. Uh, Jesus himself may not have taught on this directly. You might not be able to find red writing on it, but still Paul knows it's not true. He says you should stay married to your non-Christian spouse. And he deals with the issue of whether having sex with a non-Christian spouse is defiling. And the answer is no. He says... Paul says, God has sanctified them. He's set them apart in such a way that even though they're not Christians, it's fine to have sex with them. You're not sinning by having sex with your non-Christian spouse. It's not like back in chapter 6. Now, this sanctified, it's got nothing to do with saving people. We're going to see that in a second. You don't know if you'll be able to save your non-Christian spouse or not. It's got to do with whether you can have clean sex with them. And the answer is yes, they're set apart in such a way that it's fine to have sex with them. Paul also says 
that the children you have with a non-Christian partner are set apart by God as well. They're not unclean little pagans tainted by your non-Christian spouse. No, no, they have their place in God's family. Verse 12. Uh, To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are sanctified. They are holy. Paul says, stay married, keep having sex with your spouse, even if they don't belong to Jesus. But he goes on to say, you don't have to force them. If your non-Christian spouse refuses to stay married, you don't need to nag them and fight with them for the rest of your lives. We're called to live in peace. You don't have to nag and fight for the rest of your life, maybe because you think that, that, uh, that this is their only chance to hear about Jesus or something like that. The reality is this. You don't know if you will save your non-Christian spouse or not. So, stay married to them. Take every opportunity. That's the basic rule. But if they insist on leaving... Well, that's their call. You'll have to let them go. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay. Can you see what's here in this passage? I deliberately just tried to work through it carefully, no great songs and dances or anything like that. Um, can, can you see what's here? The Corinthians, they've written to Paul and they've argued that it's good for a man to not touch a woman. What's Paul's answer? In some circumstances, that's true. If you're single, good on you. It's good to stay as you are. Don't have sex with anyone. That's a good and godly option for a Christian. But Paul also qualifies what they're saying in a number of ways. Uh, If you're single and you want to have sex, get married. That's fine. It's no sin. Get married. Enjoy sex. It's a good gift from God. If you are married, you should have regular sex. It's a good and godly thing to do. And it's a way of serving your spouse and helping them to be godly. If you're married... It's fine that you're in a sexual relationship. You don't have to break up to be spiritual or godly. You don't need to end it. Stay married. And that applies even if you're married to a non-Christian. You don't need to worry that you're sinning by having sex with a non-Christian. God has set them apart in a way that makes it fine for you to have sex with them. Don't break up unless they absolutely insist on breaking up with you. All right. Well, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. I don't think that too many of us came to church today thinking that sex is dirty and ungodly. Um, I suspect not too many of us are on the edge of leaving our marriages so that we can join a monastery or something like that. Uh, So we may not have exactly the same issue that the Corinthians had. But it's well worth our while to reflect on the implications of what Paul says here. So let me make two points. Two points of application. The first point is this. Singleness and celibacy is a good and godly option. Singleness and celibacy is a good and godly option. If you are single and you are not having sex, you are living in a way that is pleasing to God. 
You are not a second-class citizen among God's people. You are in the company of Jesus himself, not to mention Paul and many other Christians in history. God honours you in your singleness and celibacy. Contrary to what our culture thinks, it's not impossible for you to be celibate. It's not unhealthy. You won't go blind or grow hair on your hands or anything like that. It's not going to make you into some kind of repressed Freudian weirdo and come out in some kind of distortion or anything like that. Celibacy is a good and godly option. If you are single and you want to have sex, that is also fine. It doesn't make you any less spiritual or godly. But your only godly option is to get married. Now, I know that that's easier said than done in our culture. It may not be possible for you to find a marriage partner or at least a partner you feel you would like to be married to. And that is something to weigh up carefully. Uh, If you get married to someone unsuitable, you'll get to have sex, but it will bring all kinds of other problems. Uh, At the risk of being slightly flippant, uh, I remember a few years ago we did a Bible study on contentment. Uh, The introductory question was, what do you think would make you content? Uh, the first, uh, I first led an evening Bible study with a whole heap of single people. I was living here at the time. And a number of them, they were saying, if I could just find a marriage partner, then I'd be content. Uh, the following week, I led the same Bible study with the Wednesday ladies group, a whole group of uh, married ladies. We asked the introductory question. And they were saying, if I could just get rid of this difficult husband and these children who drive me nuts, then I would be content. Yes, singleness is hard, but marriage isn't heaven either. So think very carefully. Anyway, the point is this. If you're single and you want to have sex, get married. It's great, it's fine, it's good, it's godly. But from God's perspective, you're just fine as you are. God affirms that your celibate singleness is right and good and honourable in his sight. Just one more thing to say on this topic. We ought to be thinking carefully as a church how we can encourage the single people who are among us. In Bible study this week, some of our single people made a few good suggestions. Uh, So let me give you some of their suggestions. Invite single people to do things with you. Invite them as individuals. That is, husband or wife looks after the children and sets the, the the, the other partner free to go out with the single people. And have a nice nice time. Good thing to do. But also, um, invite single people to do things with you as families. One person spoke about how a family in our church invites her to come with them on holidays. She loves that. Uh, Someone said, don't always assume that we're miserable. Single people don't need to get books on singleness every Christmas. Uh, There were mixed messages about matchmaking. Some people were saying, bring it on. Other people were saying, I don't want any part of it. So be very careful about that one. Make sure you ask before you try it. Uh, But the single people talked about how it's important to stay involved with married couples and families. It's important um, because of loneliness, but it's also helpful to see the struggles of ordinary family life so that they don't idealise or idolise marriage. That was point one. Singleness and celibacy is a good and godly option. Second point of application is this. Marriage and marital sex is a good and godly option. 
It's not beneath us or fleshy or marriage and marital sex is a good and godly option. The Corinthians had this wrong and the medieval church had it wrong as well. It's not more godly to be a celibate monk or priest or nun. There is no religious class versus secular class. Marriage and marital sex is a godly option for a Christian. That means, as it says here in 1 Corinthians, that you don't need to break up your marriage to be truly spiritual. Now, I suspect that no one would say that today anyway. But our culture has developed some similar ideas. So, so, So let me put it in modern terms. You don't need to break up your marriage to be fully actualized. You don't need to break up your marriage to find true love. You don't need to break up your marriage to be spiritually or emotionally healthy. You don't need to break up your marriage to be liberated or to be a better person. Jesus wants you to stay married. You won't be a more godly person if you leave your marriage, even if it is hard. No, you will be a more godly person if you endure, if you keep loving even your unlovable spouse, if you keep being kind even to your unkind spouse, if you keep, like Jesus says, turning the other cheek. You will be a more godly person in your marriage if, as Jesus says, you love even your enemy. Marriage and marital sex is a good and godly option, so we should cultivate commitment to our marriages. And that includes if we are married to a non-Christian. I know it can be very hard to be a Christian when you're married to a non-Christian. There are excellent reasons to not marry a non-Christian. I know they can make it more difficult to serve Jesus in many ways. They can really drag you down. But friend, God wants you to keep going. God wants you to keep loving and serving your non-Christian spouse. God honours your perseverance and who knows... You may even have the wonderful joy of leading them to Christ. Marriage and marital sex is a good and godly option. That also means, as it says here in 1 Corinthians, that in your marriage you should cultivate your sexual relationship. Woody Allen was once asked, is sex dirty? He answered this way, is sex dirty? only when it's being done right. I thought it was funny. I can tell by the raucous laughter that everybody else thinks it's funny as well. Um, But it's not true. It's not true. Sex in marriage is not dirty or unspiritual. It's part of God's good creation to be enjoyed with thanks to him. Although notice what Paul has said. It's not about you and your pleasure and you copying pornography or something. It's about serving your spouse. It's about meeting their needs. It's about putting them above yourself. It's about helping them to be holy. Now, I know. I know that it's not always easy to keep things going sexually in a marriage. I know there are lots of things that hinder us sexually. Uh, The big two, I would say, are busyness and bitterness. Busyness and bitterness, not to mention getting old and uh, medical issues and so on. But, but, But as we muddle along... As we, as we muddle along, we need to be clear about this. Sex in marriage is good and right in God's sight. God is just as concerned that you have sex with your spouse as that you go to church with them. 
God, God is just as concerned that you have sex with your spouse as that you read, read the Bible or pray with them. It's no less a spiritual matter. It's all part of a life of godliness. One more thing to say on this topic, and that is that we should be encouraging each other in our marriages and in sexuality in our church. It's something that we should talk honestly about. On the one hand, we shouldn't just be whinging and grumbling about our marriages as if they're terrible. On the other hand, we shouldn't idealise them as if it's fantastic. We should just be honest with each other and talk honestly and, and try to help each other. So, for example, you could offer to babysit someone's kids so they can attend, so they can attend a godly Christian marriage course or so they can have a dirty night in a hotel. One is no more godly than the other. Do you get it? Certainly, certainly we should be working very hard to encourage those among us who are married to non-Christians. And we should recognise and acknowledge that we have a special connection and a special responsibility to the non-Christian spouses of people in our church. We should be working hard to be their friends and to share Jesus with them. And I can, can I say how wonderful it was to see that happening in many cases at our banquet last night. The Corinthians said... It's good for a man to not touch a woman. And there's something to that. Singleness and celibacy are godly. But it's not the whole story. Marriage and sex within marriage are godly as well. So friends, let's encourage each other, in singleness or in marriage, to live for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and then I'll take questions. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you because you are good and your word is good. Uh, we acknowledge that we are hard-hearted, sinful people in a broken world and in broken relationships. Father, thank you so much that we are saved not by our goodness or by our relationships or our marital status, but we are saved by Jesus alone. We thank you so much for that wonderful grace and for that truth. Pray, Heavenly Father, that we might rejoice in it and delight in it. But do please, by your spirit, help us to be godly in our singleness and godly in our marriages. Help us to encourage each other in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.